0: Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Lynn Pugh, an organic farmer and owner of Cane Creek Farm, which is a CSA. We're going to be talking about fall planting and winter harvesting and organic growing, but first, welcome, Lynn. Can you tell us, our, our listeners,
1: what is a CSA, and tell us a little bit about your farm? Well, sure. Thanks so much for having me today. Um My farm is Cane Creek Farm. We established it about 12 years ago in Forsyth County, western Forsyth County, on land that we had owned for about 25 years. And I had been a teacher previous to that. We had just been maintaining the land, not doing anything with it. And um, when I decided to quit teaching, I wanted to be outside. And I wanted to grow organically because that's something that I'm rather passionate about from my first environmental class in college, realizing the connections that we have with this world and nature and that we need to be taking care of it. So I decided to start the farm, and I first grew on about a quarter of an acre. I had been having a garden every summer, but this was certainly different, a lot bigger um challenge and i wasn't all that successful at first i overdid it i tried too much we and all do that don't totally we yeah. at some point and then it you know it got weedy and it was discouraging but i had enough success to keep me going and um increased what i grew every year um, we already had a tractor so that helped a lot and eventually I um, was growing enough to go to a farmer's market and went to the farmer's market here in Cumming at the fairgrounds and was had some success growing, uh, selling there, and then eventually went down to Piedmont Park, to the Green Market. There's a giant one down in Piedmont Park. I was there the first year they did it. So it wasn't so gigantic then, but it was still a very pleasant place to be. But I realized how unsustainable it is to drive to Atlanta for me every day, or every Saturday. So I decided I had to do something different. In the meantime, I had taken a job with George Organics um, developing a marketing project, and in the process got to meet a lot of organic farmers and see how they marketed and discovered this concept of CSA community supported agriculture and I just fell in love with the whole idea and so that was where I wanted to go and as I got better at growing I was able to start a CSA and tell uh, people what a CSA is because I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard the term right a CSA is a um, a a a way for a farmer to get their produce to people who eat it that is very direct. People buy a share in the farm, in the farm's produce every year, and then they're able to get produce throughout the season. The whole concept started in Japan, and when a bunch of Japanese housewives hired a farmer to grow their food. I didn't know that. And it spread to England and Europe. And then over to the north um, east in Massachusetts we had the first CSA in like 86, I think. Now, of course it then hopped to California and um, eventually and <laughs> you know, has eventually spread across the country and down to the south. And it's becoming it's pretty popular down here now. the how does it differ from a farmer's market? Uh, A CSA is a much more personal relationship. You have a community of people that actually support the farm. The original CSAs were a community of people who supported a farmer. So they took the farm's budget, divided it up, and that's what each of them paid um the way that it has morphed and it does continue to evolve is that now it's more like a magazine subscription and people subscribe to the CSA and get and it's usually farmer initiated and then the farmer will grow a lot of varieties of vegetables and have them available every week many CSAs deliver their Um, shares to the city. Uh, At my farm, people come to pick it up. We have enough population around us that we can have people come out to the farm.
0: I bet they enjoy that, too, getting out to the country.
1: Uh, You know, they do. They do. And then again, sometimes it's an inconvenience because of traffic. It depends on when they try to come. Wednesday morning is when most of my people come, and that is a time when there's not too much traffic. Um, I don't have a lot of traffic right around me, but between me and them... There can be a lot of traffic. Uh-huh. Okay,
0: okay so, so how much are your shares usually, and and you divide it into seasons, don't
1: you? Like right, you have spring shares or mm-hmm. summer shares and winter shares. Many CSAs do it by the year, and that ends up being a lot of money. So I decided to make it more affordable for people, I would divide it into four seasons and have a six-week spring, a 12-week summer and fall, and then a six-week winter. That way people can pay for a piece. They can still do the whole year, and if they do, they get a discount, but they can also do it season by season as the cash flow comes in. My costs... The the way that I price my CSA is that the um, spring season is two hundred and ten dollars for six weeks, and then the fall week, summer and fall each are four twenty. So, which comes out to about thirty five dollars a week. And um, And how much produce do they get for that amount of money? You know, the only way that I know to quantify how much produce they get is is in money. And they get more than thirty-five dollars worth. Um,
0: I was looking at some of your figures that you posted on your website, and it just astounded me um, that you grew four four and a half tons of produce, and that was that was just so far the summer that season. For, that was
1: for twelve weeks. That was
0: just the summer season. That blow that blows me away. And I saw that you broke it down um, that the average value of the share was forty-eight dollars, and right. some some weeks they got. It's over $60 worth of produce in that box. Right.
1: The the concept that some people find hard to understand and to buy into is that when you join a CSA, you are sharing the risk with the farmer. And you also share the bounty with the farmer. This has been a good year. And when I have a good year, people get a lot of vegetables. When I have a bad year, they don't get as much. I try to make sure they always get the value of what they paid, but it's, you know, it's scanty sometimes, and it's not all that they would want. Yeah, and people, I think, don't realize the value of
0: getting something, of, of keeping, not only just getting something that's grown in their own part of the world and very close by that's really fresh, but also to keep people like you in business and other farmers, because, most of our food comes from mega-business, and we've all read about things happening with the giant monster mega-farms and and pollution problems, and especially scary to me now, the, the number of um, outbreaks of salmonella and other diseases. So getting it local and keeping that farmer
1: in business is really critical. It is, and... The people that really understand the CSA model are my loyal customers. They stay with me year after year through the good years and the bad years. I had one customer after just a kind of a mediocre year. It wasn't a terrible year, but it wasn't a good year. And the next year was just a great year. And she said, oh, I finally understand the CSA model. You know, last year we got, you know, three or four tomatoes. This year... I'm getting three pounds of tomatoes. And it's because that's what you have. You know, that's what has been produced. That's what this weather and, you know, the climate and the soil was able to produce this year. And
0: having people buy a share lets you plan for the future. You know how much you're going to be trying to grow at least. Um, And and you can
1: stagger your planting and your harvesting to match that. Right. It's very helpful to know ahead of time how many you're planning for Um, i always try to plant more because sometimes things don't work and i want to be sure that i give people a fair share so i have ways of um, dealing with the surplus because one reason people quit a csa is because they get too much they don't want to waste food but they don't have enough. They just don't eat that many vegetables. That's one of the reasons why
0: I don't. I haven't invested in your CSA because I do grow a, a fair amount of my own, enough for just my husband and myself. But certainly, if I had a family, I couldn't be growing now with my limited garden space. I couldn't be growing enough, and I'd much rather have fresh, nourishing food that I know hasn't been sprayed with a whole bunch of nasty stuff. Right. If I'm feeding a family, right. And that's another thing, people don't sometimes understand that you are gardening organically and so you may have a few more bugs you may have a few more blemishes some years when you get rained out I'm sure last year was kind of a bummer for you in a a lot of respects because when we end up with something like 60 or 70 inches of rain it just rained every dang day and here this year in the south we've had a couple of breaks but we had a very low slow start in the springtime too just like people in much of the rest of the country did that cold just didn't ever go away right it was a slow spring i have a cousin in that lives in wisconsin and she was just getting her hoping for her first tomato um a couple of weeks ago and normally she would have been eating them for several weeks
1: so you're spreading spreading out the stuff so how can anybody join Yes, we take anybody. The people that end up being the happiest are the ones that live closest to the farm because it's not a hassle for them to come get the food. Um, But, you know, we're off post road, which is not very – you know, a lot of people live around there, a lot of subdivisions around that area. So – And in
0: other cities, Mm -hmm. as you say, there very often is a drop-off point so that the farmer will be trucking in all these boxes of produce that they've picked and washed and selected, and they bring them into town. So it's not always that people have to go to a farm
1: to pick it up. It's rather unusual, actually, because most farms are out of the city and most people are in the city. In Forsyth County, the whole county... Is heavily populated, and I just happen to have this little niche and valley that's um, good for farming. Now, I bet you couldn't have supported
0: a CSA twenty-five years ago. When we, when my husband and I moved here to Georgia, I think there were seventeen thousand people in the county. And that included the, the county seat, the city of Cumming. And now it was close to 200,000, I think, the right. last time I looked at the census figure. Right. That's just an astounding thing. So... Um, Anybody? You, how, did, how do people that aren't here in Forsyth County, Georgia, how do they find a CSA?
1: To find a CSA, there are several directories. The oldest is probably localharvest.org, and um, that's where I listed first. And I found quickly that most of my customers came through that, that most of my customers are young people, very used to using the Internet, and that when they want to know something, they look on Google. Localharvest.org. Local harvest. Now, now there are quite a few more. There, um, Georgia Organics has a listing, and there are others that are popping up all over the place with listings of CSA farms. And I'm sure that for those of you in other states, you just could call your
0: Cooperative Extension Service, and they could probably tell you a list of neighborhood farms. Oh, you can go to Local Harvest.
1: It's national.
0: Okay. And um, so when people join you so they pay a set fee mm-hmm. and i assume that every farm sets its own fee
1: right and then every week a box of food shows up well it can be done delivered in different ways i have a market style pickup where they come on wednesday morning and and actually select their vegetables okay let's talk about some of the different ways
0: that that farms work and i also want to get into um into how you're planting f- for fall because this is the time that people right. need to be planting and we'll talk a little bit about organics and the challenge of organic gardening when we come back right after this break hi i'm dr mike karuchak join me and my co-host dr hal shirts
2: every thursday morning at 8 a.m and listen to the doctor's lounge where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves join us thursday 8 a.m every week quick stakes that's
0: And proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you.
1: This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Lynn Pugh, who has a an organic farm and a CSA. We've been talking a little bit about the CSA model, and right before the break, Lynn, you said that some farms, people come and get the boxes, and and it's a kind of a market, you
1: said? I, I set it up like a farmer's market with bins of vegetables. I have a set amount that each person gets you know because i need to make sure that i have enough for everyone so we've actually either band or bag most things and so they'll be in the bin banded a bag and they'll say well one one bag or two bags a few things they'll weigh out themselves two pounds one pound three pounds five pounds whatever it might be and then so they just go around the store And pick up everything. I also have a board that tells them, and they'll get somewhere between eight and ten things, eight to twelve things actually, Uh, just depending on the season and how much variety I have at that particular point.
0: And other firms, other CSAs, the produce comes already washed and boxed, and then people just pick up the box with their name on it.
1: Right, and we do that also in the afternoon. I have a pickup in the morning on Wednesday, and then. We, whatever, whoever has not picked up for that day, we will box theirs or actually bag it and they just will pick it up out of the cooler. Um, And some farms you can customize. And I'm not sure how they do that, but say that you don't want this and you want that. Okay. Just so people know that um, that your model isn't the
0: same model for every place in the country. Right. So th- but these are some questions that people can ask. Once they go to localharvest.org and they find a farm close to them, and then they can ask the questions. Right. How does the pickup work? Okay. Now, one of the things that a CSA farmer needs to do is to have something available for most months of the year, I know that some farms up north they run, you know, just a summer season. Mm-hmm. Down here in the south, we're here in Georgia. For those of you that aren't familiar with um, the show, and you can harvest, you pretty much harvested something all winter long last year,
1: didn't you? I could harvest all winter. I do my CSA from April to December. I, we do some harvest from the hoop house and sell on the online farmers market, but. My main crops are from April to December, but the April to May is coming from the hoop houses. So you get a good jump start on the season. Right. Now, right before the break, we
0: also talked about this is the time where people can start planting things. A lot of people don't know that you can plant now for harvesting either in the winter or to get a jump start in spring in most parts of the country in a few weeks we'll be talking to a farmer who lives way way up north a, a gardener um, who actually harvests, harvests 12 months out of the year and those of you that were listening a couple of weeks ago we talked to joe lample and joe was mentioning elliot coleman who was the kind of the pioneer of year-round farming but there's still, even if you live fairly far north, you can still be planting things. And what things might those be?
1: We're actually planting crops right now for the fall, and some of our crops will be coming in in the next few weeks. Others will come in in December. The broccoli we plant now will not come in until December. We also will plant the hoop houses. There's two ways to plant a hoop house. One is to harvest through the winter, and the other is to get an early spring harvest. So to plant through the winter, you go on and plant like September, October, get the plants growing, and then as it gets cold, they just kind of sit and wait for you to harvest them. And you just continue harvesting all winter long. So that we can do. And what plants might those be? Well, things like the greens, lettuces, um, kale, uh, collards, the roots, turnips and radishes, uh, carrots. Carrots are really good to do that way. Um most of your your cool weather crops
0: I imagine you could grow some really good spinach under under that.
1: yes now spinach I find I, I plant that in the hoop house in October and it comes in in March and I it's hard to get spinach started down here because early because it's too hot mm-hmm. so you have to wait for it to cool off enough so it's really hard to get a late spinach crop. Because of that, it's, they're getting it cool enough to germinate, but warm enough to keep growing. I actually, one year, got spinach to grow by
0: freezing the seeds in ice cube trays and planting those in the row. And I was able to plant in August when it was still really, really hot, and I had spinach. Now, that's certainly not anything that you could do for a farm, but I was doing it for just my husband and myself, and that worked out pretty well. And a lot of people are up north where it's already starting to cool off, so this is a good time for them to get started. And one of the things that beginning gardeners sometimes get discouraged about, I think, with the fall planting of things, is, as you said, by the time they get going, it's the cold weather comes and it sits and goes dormant. And the first year that I fall planted, you know, I had just moved to Georgia and I looked at that wonderful chart and it said when to plant it. And I think I got about five leaves off before the weather turned really horribly cold. And I just said, I've wasted rubber, rubber, rubber. And I, I really didn't even do anything to it. I threw a sheet of, of cloth over it and I threw a sheet of plastic over the top of that. And I just kind of gave up in disgust. Well, much to my surprise. Surprise! As a new gardener, I discovered that hey, golly, you know this stuff was up and growing. It started when it started warming up in February, and I was eating spinach, and we had spinach out the wazoo uh-huh. for that spring. Whereas when we plant spinach in the springtime, the ground is sort of cold, and the plants just don't get going very right. quickly either. So even our northern friends can plant spinach now, and if they don't get it, um, you know, if they don't get a bountiful harvest now, they certainly will get it later on if they can give it some protection and just wait. And one of the things that people up north can do that I did successfully when I lived up north for, like of course I wasn't growing spinach then, but I grew some other things, is just, you know, those Halloween hay bales that everybody has. Mm -hmm. Um, I prefer... Those of you that know that we've had problems with persistent herbicides, get alfalfa hay bales if you live in that part of the country or go for wheat straw or oat straw that's not as likely to have been sprayed with the stuff. But gather those straw bales that everybody has around for Halloween and put those right around the crops and then take an old window sash or something and put it over the top of it. And you can you create a mini Mm -hmm. greenhouse and you can keep it going. Now, you mentioned a hoop house. Mm -hmm. Do your hoops go all the way down to the ground or do they? they rise up on the side for those of you that those of our
1: listeners that don't know what a hoop
0: house is can
1: you tell us about it my hoops go all the way to the ground they're actually bent um chain link fence top post oh and um there's a bender you can get Mm -hmm. and we bent those and then put them into a bar that's in the ground and um Then purloins across the top. So we grow in the soil, and I can put the plastic all the way to the ground. And then if I need extra protection, I can put a frost cover over the plants inside the hoop house. So I have had to do that in a few years. Usually it's not a problem unless I've put my tomatoes in really early and we get a... um, a cold snap. Um, most of the cold weather things will grow pretty well in a hoop house. I discovered when I
0: first got my greenhouse and I left a bed open in it so that I could grow in the winter, it never occurred to me how cold it can get if you don't have a heater in there. But And, of course, the ground gets cold fairly quickly if you've got all that space. But in, in, I think it was Elliot Coleman that devised the trick of putting you know, an extra cover over Mm -hmm. inside for those cold nights. And even people up north can do it. And my hoop house, I know you're not supposed to make it out of PVC, but I did. And it was just simply chunks of, you know, two-foot hunks of rebar that we pounded into the soil. And we ran the PVC, made hoops of it, Mm -hmm. and hooked them over the, the rebar in the soil and then we put a board across down at the bottom so that we could attach the plastic to, and that's a simple thing that almost anybody can do. It's not elegant. Right. It doesn't really look all that pretty. And if you're in a homeowner's association that frowns on that, you probably have to do it a little bit more delicately. But then, as you mentioned, you can just put frost cloth. And there are lots and lots of brands. There's Remay and Agrabond. And and they're all over the internet. And a lot of farm stores carry them, too, so that people can cover their stuff. And if necessary, um, and I've done this a couple of years, because we had when we first moved to Georgia, 30-plus, years ago we were having some of the coldest weather i couldn't believe it I, we'd moved all this far south and it was as cold as it had been when i lived in new jersey it wasn't quite as bad as it had been when we lived in illinois but it was darn cold um but covering with the frost cloth and then another layer of plastic over the top of that mm-hmm. and then you've got the benefit of the heat being held right close to the ground for the crops and then that over the the big hoop house contains all that extra heat too uh, that otherwise would have been lost yeah. and keeps the wind off of it. Do you mm-hmm. find that wind is a as a problem
1: for you in the winter think, time in open ground? I think that the hoop house, one of the biggest things it does is keep the wind off. Uh, it keeps the rain off and the wind off and that's the best things that it does i have a funny story about the pvc hoop houses i made one of those once also but instead of a board i just put dirt on top of the plastic which worked fine but my pvc started sagging and so (laughs) i hadn't put any kind of supports in the middle of it Ah. and um so by the end i was crawling down the roads <laughs> are all hunched over. I wasn't going to give up, but I was crawling through the thing trying to get my vegetables out. Oh, it was a yes. mess.
0: I had discovered already when I tried to use plastic for, to make a cold frame that it was going to sag when we got a snow load or really heavy rain, so my husband and I went up and we used um, just big bag ties, sort of, that kind of thing, and put an extra couple of pieces of PVC flat on the top Uh and then again on the side so that wouldn't happen. What we hadn't reckoned with was the power of the wind that first year. That wind is really powerful. I do, however, have... I found some plans and I will put them up on America's Homegrown Veggie Show Facebook page. Um, And I will also put a link up to Lynn's Farm when we do that so that people know that they can do this. It doesn't have to cost them a fortune. Right. Right. Um, So if people are going to sow in the open ground if they don't have a hoop house mm-hmm. they can still right now be s- sowing lettuce and spinach and how's
1: chard for a fall crop well it does great for a fall crop right now in the last week we have done um choy and um, broccoli broccolini all the kales we've done lettuce mustard kohlrabi um carrots, radishes, we did the fall radishes as well as the short-lived radishes and I would recommend if nobody has tried the fall radishes to try those. They're called watermelon radish or there's a black Nero that is a black radish. They're both larger than your normal radish and they take longer, but they are so good and they will last into the winter. Daikon is a great one that will just go on and on. Now, how hot are they? Because a lot of radishes get really hot. The daikon has some heat, uh, but the other two are not. The um, the watermelon is especially, and it's beautiful. It's pink inside and green on the outside. Oh, how cool!
0: And how long? How much cold will it take? Ah,
1: uh, a lot. It will it will die back with a hard frost, but the roots stay in the ground. So, so if, if people live up north, they could just throw a bunch of hay over
0: it, yeah. a bunch of straw yeah. over and just it. Harvest and just
1: like carrots, and you know, harvest them as you need them. Those people
0: that haven't grown carrots over the winter need to do that too, because they're so much sweeter. Right. And you think about there a lot of, you know, going out under the snow and find them. But they stay perfectly well. They perfectly do. Perfectly good. The only thing you have to do is worry about the voles and right. some other critters getting in there. But we can talk about dealing with some critters when we come back from the break. Quick
2: stakes. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link.
1: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and I'm here with Lynn Pugh from Cane Creek Farm. And right before the break, we were talking about winter critters if you're overwintering a crop in the ground have you do you do any special protection or
1: do you just keep your fingers crossed I pretty much just keep my fingers crossed keep the dogs running around and Um, Dogs help. Cats help. help. Just keep them looking around to see what's what. Mostly it's rabbits in the hoop houses. They actually, if you have a weedy place, they will make a little burrow and live there. Why not? It's (laughs) protected from the rain, and you, you give them all the comforts
0: of home there. I know, friends, and from my own experience, growing up north, that one of the things that happens when you have snow cover or when you are doing the straw bale gardening that mice will also get in and sometimes voles and They will girdle plants. They will eat the roots. They will, you know, really make a mess. So there are a couple of things that people up north can do. One is just when you plant, make a big basket out of hardware cloth and put that in the ground and let it come up several inches. But another thing that works almost as well is to bait regular old mouse snap traps with um, a little bit of apple and peanut butter. Dip, you know dip the apple slice in peanut butter and set those in there because that will get that's attractive to most voles that we're talking vole with a v as in victor not mole not the little cute guy with the little gray paddly feet um and it'll take care of mice too so that's it those are two really good ways if you do live up north um, it, it made me so mad one year when i had lovely lovely carrots and i was harvesting them and we got the big cold snowy snap and i just put some hay over the top of them and uh, and a bit of plastic to protect them and I went out to harvest you know and dug through the snow about a week later and the doggone craters had eaten them and I was so mad because that was my winter crop and yeah you can store carrots and they you know they last for a good long time in the refrigerator but it's so much easier to leave them in the ground but so you just need to know how to protect them a little bit Right now, um, some people like to plant a fall crop of peas. For many of our listeners, it's too late to do that. They really need to get it started earlier. Um, But the greens, as you mentioned, do really well. Arugula is another one that keeps on going. And kale—you can't beat kale with a stick. Right. I've I've harvested kale and um, Brussels sprouts right out
1: from underneath the snow. Kale and collards, yeah, uh, especially certain kinds of kale, uh, will really handle most of our winters not all of them but most of our winners. you can keep those going outside so you don't have to use up your hoop house space inside with those crops um which kale is the hardiest do you think i think it's it's, it's um it's that curly one uh I have grown the Siberian kale mm-hmm. outside, but there's another one that's I'm trying we, to think of we'll riproar say, or something. I think it's riproar or something okay. like that. Okay, well, well, you can look it
0: up, and we'll put it on mm-hmm. our Facebook page when we yeah. get done. Um, and for those of you that don't have Facebook, you can contact me um, through my website, which is mrsgreenthumb.com, dot com, and I will be putting a link up. Um, to Lynn's and yours is just Farm dot net, isn't it? That's correct. So it's easy enough to remember. Okay, so do you have to do anything special for your soil preparation for
1: the winter? Well, we put cover crops. We actually are not organic certified. We are certified naturally grown, which uses the organic standards. But But you don't pay the government thousands of dollars. Yeah, don't keep those millions of uh, minutia records. I keep records, but not those. So um, for those of you that don't
0: know the difference, um, when the Organic Standards Act went into effect, a lot of the rules that were written, really that only the huge big farms can do because you have to keep records of everything and it costs a small fortune. So an awful lot of people like you, Lynn, and most of the other organic growers that I know went to either certified naturally grown or they just say they grow without Artificial chemicals, chemi- right. you know, chemicals yeah. and fungicides. Well, you yeah. know, chemicals is kind of... I know we're going to get so many arguing that using a copper spray, for example, is a chemical. Right. Um, but there are chemicals and there are chemicals. There are some that are right. certified safe by OMRI. That's O-M-R-I. And if you see that on the label, you
1: know that that's been certified for use on human food crops. Yes, I used to be a chemistry teacher, so it kind of um goes against the grain to say i don't use chemicals since everything is a chemical including water <laughs> including water but um Oh, go ahead. But 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 you can. There are ways to con, uh, control pests on your crop right. and fertilize your crops. Yes, you were and asking about the soil, and I mm-hmm. was going to tell you that one of the things. There's two things that we do that are required by organic standards, and that is use cover crops and to rotate your crops. So we do both of those. So in the fall, we will um, harrow the ground, and then we will. Um, so a cover crop, and that will stay in the ground until next spring. And we usually use um, uh, winter rye and crimson clover. Um, I'm thinking about changing it up. There's some research that says using a large variety of of cover crops is a better thing.
0: That would make sense, too, because each crop... Whether it's a cover crop or not, it's going to be bringing minerals from different right. levels and using minerals at different rates of right. speed. And, of course, the object of using a cover crop is that you cut it and you mix it in with the soil or let it lay. Um, and there have been lots of research on different ones. One of my guests, upcoming guests, has been pioneering the use of um, turnips mm-hmm. and it, out in Midwest for keeping the soil open uh, and enhancing the the tilth of the soil. Mm-hmm. So and there's hairy vetch. You mentioned the winter rye. Please, guys, get the annual rye. Don't get perennial rye. If you're up north, I know that there's a lot of perennial rye sold as a grass seed. You don't want that. Um, called or called
1: cereal rye. rye.
0: Yeah, you, uh, and you don't want that because it will persist and you will rue the day that you did Mm -hmm. that. Uh, You mentioned crimson clover. Crimson clover is especially good here in the south uh, because it will grow a good bit of the winter. Up north, you can still get a good crop of of crimson clover now, um, but of course it'll it'll usually die out later on in the winter time. Uh, But it's wonderful for fixing nitrogen in the soil. It is. And Austrian winter peas Mm -hmm. are a, a possibility for quite a number of people. Now these aren't eating peas, though you can eat them. Oh, you know, you can eat the shoots. Yeah, I was going to. Say, the
1: shoots has become real popular. I was
0: just going to mention that because most people don't know that you can eat pea shoots, and they're wonderful in a salad. And even you know, if you plant your sugar snaps or something in the spring, and it gets too hot too quickly, you can. And you know that you're not going to get. Right. Get a crop because you know some springs are like that. This year, most of us had a very long, slow mm-hmm. spring. I've got friends in other parts of the world where all of a sudden it went from winter to summer, bing. Yeah. And you know that the peas aren't going to make a crop, but you can still salvage something. And um how do you like your pea shoots? Do you saute them or you do do them raw? I like or? them raw. I mean, just put in a salad. Yeah. yeah. I. I, I, I I nibble them out in the, when I'm out in the garden, uh-huh. and I probably shouldn't do that during the cropping time. But, you know, really for us, if we don't do a fall crop of of snap peas down here, we don't get very many peas most years. Some years you get lucky. Like, now, I've never lucky. done
1: fall snap peas. Really? Snaps. I only did spring. Yeah.
0: You know, I found early on that, and of course, weather has changed a lot. Mm and last year I was very successful because again we had a long cool spring and, and this year too we had a long cool spring uh, and things the snap peas just were thriving right but I remember up when I used to grow up north um, we'd have peas and the peas would last into June as a matter of fact we'd talk about June peas uh-huh. but in this was back in the days before there were sugar snaps I'd grow snow peas for my mother because she liked to cook Chinese food and we would grow some regular peas too um And up there, you're much more likely to have a a more more successful Mm -hmm. spring crop. But growing a spring crop here
1: in so many years defeats me. It's the same for beets. Well, you know, Uh, the sugar and the short, uh those are a quicker maturity, and they are better for the spring in the south.
0: I grew sugar in one of the very first years it came out, and I thought, oh, what a wonderful idea, but that was one of those years where it went from 40 degrees to 90 degrees in the space of three or four days, and that's just really tough on plants. It is. It's it's tough. Now, while we're talking about difficulty in gardening, a lot of people don't realize You know, if they're first time gardeners and they have a failure, they don't realize that you learn from failures. You learn so much from what doesn't work and you try it again. Mm -hmm. And sometimes um sometimes you will find that, yeah, for you in your particular garden spot, one technique isn't going to work, but you don't know that until you've tried. Don't give up on it when
1: you have a failure. This is one of the points I make in my classes that I teach is that so many people think there is a perfect formula, and that perfect formula is going to give him all the vegetables they want. And I have to keep saying, you know, that's not true. Everybody's different. Every place is different. And it's different from year to year. So don't be discouraged by the failures. Just just let it roll off. Take what you can. If the deer, I mean, if the rats eat all the sweet potatoes, harvest the leaves. You know, just Like you said, with the weather and the radishes, you just let it roll off you and don't feel like it's a reflection on you You take what it comes. Yeah, And, And keep a log,
0: keep a notebook, even if it's just on a calendar. I know a lot of people use their phones for their calendar now, but get a paper calendar there are still places that give them out in the fall. Or get yourself a little notebook and write down what the weather is. Mm -hmm. Or if you forget to write it down, there are places like Weather Underground where you can go and get your weather records, for usually for a, a neighborhood weather station that's close to you, and write it down. And that will give you a chance to reflect, too, like a lot of people this year were having some trouble with some of their perennial crops because we had such a terrible winter. It wasn't just cold, unusually cold for us here in the South, but it was wet. And when you look back and see, oh, yeah, we had that long spell where it rained and we got 17 inches of rain in six weeks. And that's why. And then, you know, for next year. Either, you know, maybe you can move that bed into something that's more protected,
1: or you just chalk it up, well, it's just one of those years, and don't feel bad about it. Right. And ask other people how theirs are doing. Uh, My basil this year does not look good. And so, you know, I didn't really know if it was something I did. It looked great, and then it just started kind of browning on the leaves. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, do I have a disease or what? But then several people came by and said, you know, my basil looks just like that. I said, oh, well, then it's climate thing yeah. you know it has something to do with the environment and it's just the way it is yep yeah. And basil is one of those things. There are, there is a mildew that's
0: getting on basil. Um, most of the time you're not going to see it if you buy from a reputable seed source, but it's out there and sometimes you get it. Um, just like with impatience. Impatience used to be the flower to grow in the shade and now there's the impatience mildew and it just wipes things out and there's not a whole lot we can do about it. But there's always, the weather I think is probably the single biggest thing that can bollocks up a gardener and for us down here in the south this year and last year it was the rain 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 and more rain i've got a friend out in washington state in eastern washington and she went from they went from winter to summer they are they normally get eight inches of rain a year they're down three inches Mm-hmm. That's a world of hurt, even though she can uh, can uh, irrigate out there. But the weather has just been terrible for her, and sometimes that just happens. And I think we're going to have to expect that that's the norm. We'll talk about that and more gardening problems and how we solve them right after this break. Quick stakes.
2: That's.
0: Do you know why becoming a Certified Healthcare Consumerism Specialist is more important than ever in 2014? Adding this specialized designation to your credentials tells employers or your clients that you understand how much our industry has changed and how to navigate that change successfully. IHC University's certification program offers coursework both online and live at their biannual forum conference series. And testing is completed online. Reaffirm your position as a leader in the health and benefit management industry. Download our certification overview and learn more at www.theihcc.com.
2: That's www.theihcc.com. This
1: is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Lynn Pugh, an organic farmer and owner of Cane Creek Farm. And we had talked a little bit about cover crops. And people think that cover crops are for farms, but they're for every gardener, aren't they, Lynn?
1: They are. Most everybody can figure out a way to put in a little cover crop when they're not growing, especially if they're just summer gardeners.
0: Yeah, and even if you're a summer gardener and you've got space in the middle of the summer, you can throw some seeds in for a little quick crop, um, mash it down when you're ready to plant, and... And you've got something that's protecting the soil from weeds because Mother Nature does not like a vacuum. And if there's a bare ground, she's going to put a weed in it unless you put a plant there. And then certainly over the wintertime, because mulching is okay, and some people like to cover the garden with chopped leaves, and that's all right too. One of the advantages, of course, of using a cover crop is that the roots go down deep into the soil. They bring up nutrients, and then they're back into the plant zone when you plant the next summer. And we gave you a whole list of cover crops. And just find out what works in your area and consider rotating. Maybe crimson clover one year, rye another year. Some people are having really good luck growing vetch particularly if they're going to follow it with tomatoes in the springtime So, and that will help do a couple of things. One, because you're working the soil again, it will get a lot of the bugs that have fallen off of your crops, that have eaten your crops and that pupate and overwinter in the soil. That will help that a lot too um, besides preventing erosion. Now what Let's talk about, we talked about the weather and vagaries of the weather. What other problems have you seen a lot of this year?
1: Well, we've had diseases. Our tomatoes have just been a problem for the last five years, I'd say, with diseases. Um, They seem to be becoming more prevalent here in Georgia. And... um, I think it has a lot to do with the weather. We were in a drought for so long. We got we spoiled by that drought, we, didn't we? We were just protected from those diseases because of the drought. And now we're back into, the, I guess, the more normal weather systems, and we have a lot more rain, and so there's a lot more... Um, of the the fungal diseases. So buying varieties that are resistant is one thing that you can do that helps. And then giving the plants enough space so that there's plenty of ventilation helps. I also have found that neem oil um, applied correctly, not in the sunshine, will um, help. And then um, the copper sprays will help. There's nothing that's going to just take care of all of it. This, This summer, we had some late blight and took out the plants that had really bad late blight. And the ones that had just a touch of it, it got dry, and they recovered. So... You just have to work with it. But those are the kind of things that do happen, and the diseases have been a problem on the, mostly on the tomatoes. And people can help
0: mitigate some of those diseases wherever they live by putting your garden in a site where it gets full sun, which my garden... Doesn't have, and you know, of course, I have more problems that way. And also, good air circulation, both spacing plants as you mentioned, Lynn, and also just make sure that the area around it is open, that you don't have shrubbery or a really thick fence right around it. Get that air moving, because the faster a plant dries out, even if you do have, you know, our typical, a lot of the East Coast in particular has. Um, typical afternoon thunderstorms, getting especially getting into August, and the plants go into the night wet. And if they can dry off first thing in the morning, when, as soon as the sun comes out, they're not as likely to get diseased. Now, how have you been doing with your
1: um, cucumbers and squash this year? Most of our cucumbers and squash have done really well, but occasionally they will get powdery mildew. And um, the way that we treat with that is with milk. You actually take a cup of milk and put it in a gallon of water and spray it on the leaves. And just do that. And spray on the, the top of the leaves or the bottom of the leaves? The top of the leaves. Top of the, the top leaves. of the leaves. And just spray them really good. And maybe a couple of times. Yeah. Um And And it it really helps. It's a preventive, though. People have to know that once that
0: spore has infected that leaf, that leaf is not going to recover. But you can protect all the new little leaves that are going to come on after that by keeping up with the milk spray.
1: Lynn, what do you do for bugs? You're an organic gardener. Well, one of the things that, um, this is I stress it with my classes, the best Prevention for pest control is to have good soil grow healthy plants. Because if you look at a stand of plants and you look at the ones that have bugs, they're the unhealthy plants. They're they're the sick ones. They're the sick ones. They're the runts. And the the insects are going to go after those plants. So if you have a bunch of healthy plants, you're not nearly as likely to have so much... Insect con- damage that it per- that it um, hurts your harvest. Not to say that you won't have any. Yeah, there there are some bugs that are just going to be around. Uh, like
0: if you grow squash, chances are you're going to have squash bugs and right. probably squash fine borer. That just is, um, though. It's. You said that you didn't have much trouble with squash bugs this year. I've already have, heard from a number of people that they've had
1: I just have huge squash bugs, but I don't—they aren't causing a lot of problem. Uh, the squash vine borer, I just don't seem to have until very late in the season. Um, I know when I gardened, I had a lot more problem with it than when I farmed. I have—if I have six plants, you know, they may get three, but when I have hundreds of plants. They still get three, you know, and it just doesn't matter. The problem, the problems that I have that I actually intervene are as far as insects, is mostly cabbage loopers with all of the brassica family, um, but especially the broccoli. um, Yeah, there's very few things that are less
0: appetizing than steaming a nice bunch of broccoli and having extra little green protein in the bottom of the pot when you're done. I have done that.
1: Yeah, (laughs) and I always say don't boil it because when you boil it, they float to the top. (laughs) I'd rather steam it and just pull it out real quick and you don't have to see them. is of course, better not to have them, but it's really difficult not to have any. Um, yeah, but we use the Bt.
0: Yeah. Bt works very well. It goes under the name also of Thuricide, which is a liquid, right. and Dipel, and there are a couple other brands now. Those were the two original. But if you go into your garden center and you need something, you say that right. you need something for those little green worms on your broccoli, they will have the right stuff for you. Um, another thing people can do for that is use insect barriers. Right. I am a big fan of insect barriers. I used to use them extensively in my backyard. I don't use them in front because in my driveway garden because they're, they're not really very pretty. But you can get ultralight ultra light insect barriers, put them over the plants when you plant them, and you'll have many, many fewer problems. That works really well for things that don't have to be pollinated, like yes. broccoli
1: and cabbage.
0: And even you can mitigate the damage from the squash vine borer and squash right. bugs if you leave it on until you yeah, see the flowers, right. and especially when you see the first female flowers, because the male flowers, it doesn't really matter. You might as well mm-hmm. eat those if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you see the female flowers and they need to get pollinated, takes cover off. Or, or you can pollinate in the small garden, in your home garden. You can do what we did for a number of years before, after the honeybees died and before the native bee population rebounded which is just to take a Q-tip and go from one flower to another of your squash and then you could put the cover back down again. Now, You mentioned good soil will stave off a lot of problems. One of the things that I also saw when I worked for Extension is if people over fertilize particularly with chemical fertilizers but you can do it with um, organic fertilizers too the plants are growing very very lush and green and they're very attractive to aphids. And a lot of people will make the mistake with aphids, then, of using a chemical spray because that's what the, gar- what the commercials tell them to do. Um, I use, whenever I have aphids, I just wash them off with a hose, a strong jet of water, and my fingers takes care of them. Don't please do what I did when I was a beginning gardener, and I had apple trees, and I noticed one year that I had terrible, terrible numbers of aphids out there. It was just one of those years for aphids. And I didn't see any ladybugs around. And so I followed the directions of a certain person who will be renamed, be nameless, who used to have a show on PBS that talked about mixing detergent in water. And frankly, I had used the ivory liquid in water for a number of years and I had one bottle that I kept just for doing that. And so I before I went to work I sprayed the trees because it was going to be cool that day and I came home and I noticed the tree didn't look so good. You know, if you're a mom you know how when your child is going to get sick that look that they have before they actually get sick and the next day it looked worse and the day after that it looked even worse and when I when I left for work and when I came back home that day um, every leaf was off of it. And what had happened was the manufacturer, I had had to get a new bottle of ivory and the manufacturer had changed it a little bit and that changed because they're not selling it for an insecticide or a pesticide, they're selling it to clean dishes and they would made a little bit of a change so please don't use a lot of these other sprays. Check with your county extension agent, Um, there's been a huge amount of research into organic controls, Um, the Atra website, I'm sure that Lynn is familiar with it, it's a-T-T-R-A dot org. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they have methods that actually will work. So when you see a pest, and frankly, most pests, you can just let the pest be, and except for the little green worms that you don't want the extra protein. Um, most of them are going to be self-limiting because when you see the pest, you're sooner or later, usually sooner,
1: going to see something that's going to eat the pest. It's very interesting that I find that I have fewer pests outside the hoop house than inside because the natural predators take care of them and now that's not true of cabbage loopers yeah but of a lot of other pests like aphids i never have aphids outside but i will have them in the hoop house sometime. i'll still get aphids once in a while
0: in a really lush spring but not very often and the ladybugs are going to be right there and yes. the and the um Uh, There are lots of other predators. And by the way, for folks that don't know what a baby ladybug looks like, please go look up ladybug larva online so that you're not killing them. When I used to work for Extension, I would get people bringing in ladybug larva saying that these things were all over and their plants looked terrible, and I had to tell them that that thing that looks like a little blue and orange or black and orange alligator with bristles and spots, sometimes more or less bristles and spots, was really a baby ladybug. Right. Because there's so many things out there that we don't know and University of Georgia has a wonderful listing of beneficial insects so people can go there are ground beetles that are out there that are going to eat things Um, hornets I had one year I left a hornet nest where it wasn't going to bother me I could see it and I watched the hornets go in and out and they would go over to my corn and they would pick out the worms. They would go over to the broccoli. Mm-hmm. They would pick off the worms, and they would carry them back into the hornet's nest. Huh. I had no problem with any kind of worm pest that year. Uh, so let the beneficials do their work, and please don't spray them out of existence. Because if you spray, you know you're killing off the beneficials as well as you're killing off the pests. Now, Lynn, you mentioned that you have you taught you have an organic curriculum, and that's available on the Georgia Organics website. You also do classes and farm tours. I do. And birthday parties on your farm. And, pe-
1: right. and people can get to you by... Going to canecreekfarm.net. Is that right? Right. That's the website, and there are forms on the website that you can email from. And the the fall class will be starting September 13th. So we're taking registrations right now for that class.
0: Great. So people that are local, go, go take a class from Lynn. Everybody that I know that's taken one of your classes has just had a great time with it. I will have all this information up on America's um, Homegrown Veggie Show Facebook page. You can also... Contact me through my website, which is mrsgreenthumb.com, or through America's Web Radio. Thank you very much, and we'll be back talking more gardening next week.